morning. My name is Chris Boyer. It's great to meet you. My wife and I, Viviana, we lead the campus ministry or the college ministry here at the Lighthouse Church of Christ. And uh, we're really grateful to be here with you this morning. Actually, my wife is at home and she's watching uh, live from our upstream uh, satellite feed. So good morning, babe. She's recovering. The reason she's not at church today is because we had a baby on Monday. Very exciting. Very exciting time in my life. Uh, Micah Thomas Boyer is his name. And he was born on Monday, 7 pounds, 13 ounces. And uh, I am so grateful. I'm like walking on clouds right now. I mean, seriously, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even know. Um, the first time my wife and I had kids, it was rather a difficult experience. And we had a lot of fears going into it. And we went from zero kids to two kids. And so that first time when we had kids, it was like zero to full speed. Um, and I went from like having no kids at all to like, what did I get myself into? And uh, now going from two kids to three kids, it's, it's just been such a blessing. And I, I left the hospital on Friday night at 530. And, um, you know, you're just like driving around. And you stop at the gas station. You're like, I'm just so grateful to be here at the gas station. And. Ah, it's so nice out. Look at the, the wind is blowing through the palm trees. You're like, life is such a great experience. You're like, seriously, I, I've, I've been feeling those kinds of things. Uh, seeing the beginning of life and a, a new life begin is a blessing. And it really makes, makes you think about the shortness of your life, but not like, I guess maybe because it's my third kid, I just feel way different about it. That you see the newness of life and you're like, that's just so amazing. So I wanted to give a shout out as well because there's another baby born this week to a couple in the fellowship. Lev and Adalia had a baby as well. And so I wanted to give them a shout. I don't think they're here. And her name is Selena Gregory. And that's a photo of her, Selena. And so uh, your prayers can go out for them. I don't really know how they're doing. I just saw their uh, Facebook update. And so I grabbed the picture and uh, put it there. So I'm a big advocate of social networking. You can follow me at Boyer Surfs on Twitter. So if you want to see more pictures of Micah, go to Boyer Surfs on Twitter, and I'll be posting more pictures there. So I just want to put a plug for that. Today we're going to be talking about a lesson. We're continuing a series that we've just begun called Christian. It's not what you think. Okay, so what we're going to talk about today, it's not what you think. And a lot of us in here, we, we heard the lesson last week, and, and we think, you know, okay, there's a disciple. And, and a lot of us in here, we think we know what a Christian is. I mean, I think all of us probably sitting here probably think we know what a Christian is. And uh, it's really convicting when we start to look at this more deeply. And the thing that we're going to talk about today is super profound. I think it's going to resonate with everybody who's in here. Whether you're in here for the first time and you're a guest, whether you're a young Christian, an old Christian, in some way today's lesson, I believe, is going to resonate with you powerfully. The title of the lesson today is Quitters. Quitters. And, I mean, I know that you're like, why are we calling it Christian Quitters? Hmm, what angle is Chris going to take on this today? You're like, is he going to talk about those people who quit? What's he going to do? So we're actually going to be going into depth on someone's opinion, kind of someone's perspective on what happened, because um, I'm sure that you've known someone who quit the faith at some time or another, right? I'm sure that you've known someone, maybe you yourself have struggled with your own faith and your own identity and trying to come to terms with who God is in your life. And there's been some point where you've seen your own struggle or you've known someone who's walked away 
from the faith. And so quitters, this is a very powerful concept here, and you're going to see there's something that probably you have felt at some time or you've known someone who felt this strongly at some time that has affected you. And so I'm going to be talking about an author, and her name is Anne Rice. Some of you may know who Anne Rice is. I did not know who she was prior to, to preparing for this lesson. That I, I didn't know who she was, but there was a movie that I did know, and it was called Interview with a Vampire. And that's, I don't know, from the 90s, I think, and it had Brad Pitt, and it had Tom Cruise in it. So it was before Twilight, teens. It was before Twilight. So, but if you like vampires, I'm, I'm sure you'd like that movie. Um, so Anne Rice, she was the, like, you know, uh, before Twilight, she's this author that, you know, in the 70s, she wrote a number of books called The Vampire Chronicles. And The Vampire Chronicles, most of us probably have not read it or even heard of them, but she is like a well-published author. She's published 90 million books. And obviously, producing a movie with two big-name actors like that, she's rubbed elbows with the biggest producers in Hollywood and the biggest actors in Hollywood. So needless to say, she is successful, she's intelligent, she's rich, she's well-known. She's smarter than you and me put together, and, you know, she, she's gone places that I will never go, and she knows people that I will never meet. Okay, so Anne Rice is a super successful author. Well, Anne's situation, she wrote these books um, in the 70s. She's still an author, but um, she actually, when she was 18 years old, prior to being 18, she was in the church, or she was a Christian. And then once she turned 18 years old, she fled from Christianity, in her words, she left Christianity violently and completely. That she turned 18, and from 18 years old on, she became an atheist. She didn't even believe in God. She didn't believe that a God exists, if you're not familiar with that term. But, so she wrote these books, and these are like very like metaphysical, fictional, gothic, you know, and she's writing some really crazy stuff. Like one of the titles you'll see of the books here is Queen of the Damned. She's writing about vampires. She's writing intense spiritual stuff. And she was spent 30 years, from 18 years old to her late 50s, being an atheist. Now, the good news is, is Anne came back. And she came back in, in her mid late 50s. She came back to her faith. She re-embraced her faith from, from her younger years. She came back to believing in God, and in this particular book, this is, she decided to dedicate her writing to Christ, to dedicating her, her talent in writing to really building up Christ. And so she wrote this book called Christ the Lord Out of Egypt. It's about Jesus, like, being a kid, and it's a fictional book, but she thought, what was Jesus like when he's younger? And so she started to write a book about, you know, did he tease his friends and, like, you know, do stuff and, like, you know, I don't know, walk through walls or do something crazy. But he, you know, I don't know exactly what, what he did there. But in the back of this book, there's an editor's note of how she re-embraced her faith and, and why exactly that happened. And so in the back when there's this editor's note and she talks about how she came back, she went into detail about how she came to faith again. I think that's pretty significant for us to consider, right? This person went from being a Christian to being a powerful atheist, meaning she was an atheist, she was successful, she was wealthy, she was you know, popular, she was eloquent and good-looking and intelligent. She had everything that you and I might want. And she was an atheist, but then she came back to her faith. So how did she come back to her faith? Well, as a publisher and, a, and an author, she was a researcher. So she did a lot of research. She read a lot. She researched what she was going to be writing about. And she became particularly fascinated with the Jewish religion because it was a, an ancient religion that survived. And 
what happened is there's a very important date that you guys need to know about and, and a set of wars that happened called the, the Jewish Wars. And the Jewish Wars happened around 64 A.D., after Jesus. And what happened was the Jews revolted against Rome. And this guy right here, his name is Flavius Josephus. He was born about the time of Christ's death. And this guy, during 64 to, to around that time, 70, he wrote for the Romans. Almost an hour-by-hour hour account of what happened during the Jewish revolt. And so Flavius Josephus has a number of writings from the first century, and he's an important historical writer that you should know his name. That his name is Josephus, and he has, these, he, he has these writings because there's really not that much out there. And he has this huge, complete set of writings from the first century the thing is, is he's a, he's a Jew who basically went over to the bad side. He went over to the Roman side, and he was writing for the Romans. So that's something for you to know. And what happened finally and completely, there was the destruction of Jerusalem. That the temple was destroyed finally and completely in 70 AD. And this is a world-changing moment. That this destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, it changed the history of the world. And this was... The temple was the center of market and commerce. It was the center of information. It was the center of communication. And the, and the temple was destroyed. And so in the, world, in the history of the world, that's a year that we should probably try to understand and know. And so hundreds of thousands of Jews were massacred and crucified during this time. And so Anne was studying out. Josephus and wanted and studying out first century and Judaism and it really interested her how you know it's this this religion has made it to today and she's like you know what else is there that I can research and study oh I know where I can find about ancient Judaism I can look to the Bible and so she looks in the Bible and she starts reading the Gospels and trying to find an account of the destruction of Jerusalem but the account is not there there is no account of, there's no reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. And what that means is there's no reference in this world-changing moment in history, 70 A.D., the destruction of, of Jerusalem. If that's not referenced in the Gospels, she's like, well, then the Gospels must have been written prior to 70 A.D., of course. And if the Gospels were written prior to 70 A.D., that means the eyewitnesses were still alive. And if the eyewitnesses were still alive, that means there wasn't enough time for it to become a mythological account. And so she came to faith by basically studying. And I know that's how all of us came into faith here today, right? We can't, we can't, we, we deduced that. Like, yeah, 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 the 70 AD, the destruction, it's not mentioned. The Gospels were written before 70 AD. So you or I may have been taught by our, our, our college professors or someone that they, they may have been written at another time. They're written before 70 AD. So she came to that conclusion. She came back to faith. And so her second book that she wrote was Anne Rice. This is Anne Rice. Meet Anne. And... She wrote this book called Called Out of Darkness, A Spiritual Confession. And here in this book, I'm going to show you. Now remember, she is a well-publicized author. That she's been everywhere. That she's done everything. And this is what she has to say about why she came back. She, God, knew how or why everything happened. He knew the disposition of every single soul. He wasn't going to let anything happen by accident. Nobody was going to hell by mistake. This was his world. All this. He had complete control of it. His justice, his mercy were not 
our justice or our mercy. What folly to even imagine such a thing. She said, this is all God's. He created all of it, and he has complete control. And his justice is not our justice. His mercy is not our mercy. What folly, what a joke to even consider such a thing that, you know, that someone's going to hell and, and, you know, is this person going to hell? Is that person going to hell? God has complete control. What folly to even imagine that God doesn't have control. His justice is not our justice. His mercy is not our mercy. She says, I didn't have to know how he was going to save the unlettered and the unbaptized or how he would redeem the conscientious heathen who has never spoken his name. I didn't know how my gay friends would find their way to redemption or how my hardworking secular humanist friends could or would receive the power of his saving grace. You know, I think that should hit home with a lot of us here today. That she didn't know how the person who's never uttered his name would be saved or how the unbaptized would be saved or how our hardworking secular humanist friends would be saved or how our gay friends would find their way to redemption those are questions that resonate with us deeply every one of us that resonates with me because i'm like wow that's intense how would that happen i didn't have to know why good people suffered in agony or died in pain the question of human suffering he knew he knew And why should I, and it was his knowing that overwhelmed me. His knowing that became completely real to me. God knows his knowing. It's not about my knowing. He knows. He knows what he's doing. And why should I remain apart from him? Just because I couldn't grasp all this. He could grasp it. You know, teens, I want to tell you something. There's questions that you will never have answered. College students, there are questions you will never have answered. You know, and I want to speak especially to to those two groups here today right now because, you know what? Why should you remain apart from God? Because you don't know everything He knows. And you don't understand what He's thinking when He's doing what He's doing. Why should I remain apart from Him? Just because I couldn't grasp it all. What folly to imagine such a thing. This is an amazing quote. So that's, that's from this book called uh, Called Out of Darkness, A Spiritual Journey. I went ahead and bought that on my Kindle. Um, and I was go ahead and, I was flipping through it on, on my Kindle and uh, my Kindle app on my iPhone, actually. And, um, and uh, that's, I wanted to get it specifically for that quote because that is really, really powerful. That she came back to faith after 30 years and after being as successful as she could possibly be. It's like being the Michael Phelps. It's like being the Kobe Bryant or whatever successful athlete that you want to point out because not all of us are thinking about being successful writers and popular. But she was very well published, very successful. And she came back to faith because she considered this. Okay, so then uh, in 2010, so that was in the late 90s that she became a Christian again after 30 years outside of faith. Anne Rice becomes a Christian Ten years later, I want to read to you a Facebook post in July of 2010. Now, I hope you guys are ready for this because things are going to change a little bit here. 
today, I quit being a Christian. Great. She just made that awesome publication. Dude, she just said that. That was awesome. No, she can't quit. She just started. Today, I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being a Christian or to being a part of Christianity. Wait a second. She just said she is going to remain committed to Christ, but she's no longer going to be a part of the Christian community? She's no longer going to be considering herself a Christian? Can you do that? Wait a second. Get out the rule book. Amendment. (laughs) I'm going to amend the rules. I love amending the rules when I play games. Um, Always in my favor. She she was going to quit being a Christian, but remain committed to Christ. Is that possible? Can you do that? Does that work? Well, you're like, everyone in here today is like, great. We're all here, like, sitting here right now, and like, you know, you could do that? You could practice that? Maybe you brought your friend as a guest for the first time today, and they're like, okay, this is a little weird. Like, disorganized religion. But listen to what she says. Listen to what she says about the Christian community. This is, this is, this is the bottom line, what I'm going to tell you right now. So, so if you came here today and you were expecting that I was going to bust out the Bible and just start preaching the word and just sharing the truth of God with you, I'm going to share with you. This is a really, really powerful observation. And this is the bottom line. If you get lost and you don't understand, right now I'm creating a problem. This is a problem in a current condition that exists in the Christian world at large, in our nation, in our culture, and in our church. And this is the problem. It is simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. She says it's impossible for her to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious. Don't you always use that word? (laughs) Always use that. Honey, you're being disputatious with me right now. I don't like it. Deservedly infamous group. You know, does that apply to Christianity? Is she talking about the Christians? Is she talking about the Christian group? Who's she talking about? The Christians who are in front of the abortion centers? The Christians who are on the street corners or at your college campus holding up a sign or wearing a banner saying, You're going to hell? Is she talking about the wars that were fought in the name of Christianity? That there's Christians on both sides of it? Or the Christians on both sides of the slavery issue? Or the civil rights movement? Quarrelsome, hostile, and just... She's like, I'm cool with Christ. I like Christ. I love Christ. I just don't like quarrelsome people. I just don't like the hostility that I see in the Christian world. I just don't like the disputatious people that are involved with it. And I don't like this deservedly infamous group. You know, I mentioned a lot of things that were like out there, like, you know, those people out there. How about in here? How about, is that you? Are you quarrelsome? Are you hostile and disputatious? Like, bro, I'm standing up for the truth. Jesus wanted me to stand for the truth. I'm preaching the word with conviction. 
I'm helping someone to come to faith. And if they don't want it, that's on them. Because I, I, I showed them what the Bible had to say. You know, for me personally, this, this resonates deeply. And um, the way that this resonates deeply is, um, you know, my sister studied the Bible. And, I mean, I've studied the Bible with a lot of people trying to help them come to faith. But, um, you know, my sister, she lived in a different state. And this is a number of years ago, ten years ago. And um, she actually studied the Bible to become a Christian. And uh, during that time, she basically, like, kind of like Anne said, she, like, completely and violently went the other direction. She had been studying the Bible for a long period of time. And then she completely and violently went the other direction. And, and, she, and, and basically, she abandoned it. She abandoned studying the Bible. And I don't think she completely abandoned faith. I actually spoke to her about this yesterday. She didn't abandon faith. She didn't abandon, like, is there a God? Did Jesus die on the cross? It's not that. But the people who studied the Bible with her really turned her off somehow. And that's been a major point of contention for me and my faith for my parents and their faith, for her. She has a husband now. I mean, that could have affected them. And, and the things that those people who studied the Bible with her, I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I have to think about this quote and think, you know, they might have been trying to stand up for truth or they thought they had a corner on truth. They thought their brand had... The, it, it had the only product that was worth buying. They made they may, they may have said, our brand is the one brand. It's the only brand. But if they were quarrelsome, hostile, and disputatious, yeah, that's not going to help. And so for me personally, that's something that, that to this day, my sister, like, we haven't really talked about the Bible. Yesterday in this conversation, I told her, and I know that she's probably watching this right now, and... Um, um, she has, she's having her baby shower today, so she might be watching on archive later tonight. But um, I told her that I was going to be mentioning this, and we had one of the best conversations that we've had spiritually probably in five years, six years. Yesterday on the phone preparing for this, I said, Kim, I'm going to mention you. I'm going to talk about you studying the Bible. And I just want to make sure that's okay with you because I know it was a really hard time. You know? and, and so we, we talked through it a little bit, talked through the situation. I wanted to make sure I understood the details right and what my memory of ten years ago was. So... Maybe you know someone who's violently and completely left the church because what they see in Christianity is this type of characteristic. For years I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience, my conscience will allow nothing else. So her conscience, Anne Rice's conscience, her conscience that's been informed by her following Jesus for the last ten years, her conscience that's been informed by researching and studying the Bible, her conscience won't allow her to call herself a Christian any longer. But she wants to remain committed to Christ. My faith in Christ is central to my life. My conversion from a pessimistic atheist in a lost world I didn't understand to an optimistic believer in a universe created and sustained by a loving God is crucial to me. She says that I went from being a pessimistic atheist to an optimistic believer in a universe created and sustained by a loving God. She says, my conversion and my faith is crucial and essential to me. That she says, I've been redeemed. But following Christ 
does not mean following his followers. Wow. Following Christ does not mean following his followers. You ever seen one of those bumper stickers or a shirt or a post? It says, save me, Lord, from your followers. (laughs) Save me, Lord, from your followers. People love Christ, but they hate his followers. Christ is infinitely more important than Christianity. Christ is infinitely more important than Christianity and always will be. No matter what Christianity is, has been, or might become. Is Christ more important than the church? Or is the church more important than Christ? I think that in the Christian community at large, and maybe you can look in here as well, that I don't know if we really value that. I don't know if we really believe that. And I think even raising the question right now probably stirs some emotions in all of our hearts like, whoa, maybe I haven't really considered that. But the church is, gonna, is morphing and changing over time. And as much as we try to be like, you know, we want to imitate what Christ said, we want to be like the first Christians, we're really far off. We're really far off from what the first century Christians were like. As much as we want to say, we want to hold it, we're the brand, we're like the number one, we're going to try to be like Christ, we're going to try to be like the first century Christians. We're just trying to practice first century Christianity. We're just trying to practice it. No matter how that is, over time, it, it, it goes in different directions. And it, seg- it, it starts breaking off into little tangents and different directions. That's why there's so many churches out there, 19 thousand different types of churches out there so the christian movement no matter what it is no matter what it has been or what will become according to ann rice in 2010 christ is more important than what's happening in the church whoa i think a lot of the christians in here today are feeling very uncomfortable and a lot of guests in here today are like amen (laughs) (laughs) preach they don't even say that (laughs) for sure so in a a post post interview so after the post on facebook she has an interview so a post post interview this is what she says my my commitment to christ remains at the heart and center of my life transformation in him is radical and ongoing in the campus ministry Our win or what we're trying to accomplish is we want to transform lives of college students in the San Gabriel Valley by the teachings, principles, and example of Jesus. That's what we want to do. We want to help people transform their lives. So she says transformation in him is radical and ongoing. She's been transformed. Her life has been changed. That I feel now that I'm called to be an outsider for him. To step away from the words Christian and Christianity is something my conscience demands of me. So, we're talking about quitters. She felt that she had to step away from Christianity, and that was in 2010. And um, we're talking about people who have left the faith, who have walked away from the faith, or people who have been offended by Christianity, or Christian movement, Christian whatever, just been offended by Christianity. And sometimes it's not because we didn't have the right theology what theology is, like the study, like our doctrine, what we believe. It's not because we didn't believe the right thing. But people turn away because Christians are hostile. 
quarrelsome and disputatious. So the word Christian, we talked about this last week a little bit, and um, for those of you guys in here that have been Christians for a while, um, I think you guys are pretty familiar with this kind of concept that there's these two words, Christian, disciple. We kind of include that in our Bible study series. We have a very simple foundational Bible study series, and we always talk about the difference between Christian and disciple because everybody calls themselves a Christian. Everybody calls themselves a Christian. And as as Peter addressed last week, Christian could really mean a lot of things, and it's not well defined in the Bible. There's only a few places it's used, and when it's used, it's used in in aspect or in regard to a nickname or a derogatory term given to a group of followers of Jesus. So like a geek, a geek is someone who, you know, maybe in the 70s or 80s, or I don't know when when the word started, but geek wasn't a positive thing. It was a negative connotation. It was derogatory. You're a geek. You're a loser. You're a nerd. But today it's on the side of vans, and the guys come into your house and they help you install stereo equipment or home audio equipment. And you're like, yeah, this is one of the geeks. He's awesome. You know? People own it. They wear it as a badge of honor. They're like, yeah, I'm kind of a geek. You know? They, don't, they like that. So the word Christian was a derogatory term, but then the followers of Jesus kind of took it on. So the Christians and Jesus didn't refer to his followers. He didn't refer to, refer to them as Christians. He referred to them as disciples. Christians are hostile, argumentative, and disputatious. That's what the Christian movement, or even the followers of Jesus today, they're known as being this. The problem, these are the problems that Anne talked about. That people love Jesus, but they hate his followers. But the word disciple, the word disciple is very pinpointed in the Bible. The word disciple has a definition. It has meaning. And it's clear in the Bible what you need to be like, what you need to do, what you need to be adhering to in order to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's what Jesus wanted people to become. He wanted them to become disciples. And when we look at the word disciple and we define it, we research in the Bible and we find all the places in the New Testament that talk about following Jesus, it's challenging. It is challenging to be a disciple. It's easy to be like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in stuff and, you know, I'm in a Christian community and, yeah, I'm not like against Jesus or anything. I'm not like anti-Bible, you know. I'm not anti-God. It's easy. People think, well, that puts me in the category of Christian. And that's why there's so much ambiguity. That's why it's so ambiguous what it means to be a Christian. That's why we have Christians on both sides of the war of two predominantly Christian nations or on both sides of the civil rights movement, or both sides of slavery. A disciple is very clear. Now, before I tell you what we need to do, when we look at this picture right here, this is not inspiring. That's not inspiring. You know, when I tell you what I'm going to tell you right now, that's not who said it. That was not the person who I'm talking about today. Okay? Because this is, for, this is for the men that are in here today. Because sometimes, you know, what I'm going to tell you guys, because the problem that we've created, the problem that we see, the current condition is that Christians are known to be quarrelsome and hostile. And so I want to give you a simple solution, and I want to really help. Well, it's not really that simple, but 
It's something that's going to help us if we could just practice this one thing that Jesus said. If we could just live out, if we could just embody this one thing that Jesus said. But this is not who said it. When we see this guy floating on the clouds, and he's like, excuse me. I have something to say. You know, I looked up a bunch of Jesus pictures, and I was going to go off at this time in my lesson about showing you all these different Jesus pictures. And it's so funny. You get, like, the receding hair Jesus. You get, like, the black Jesus. You know what I mean? You get, and he's, like, super well-groomed and manicured with, like, a goatee and everything. And, and I'm like, all right. And then you get, like, the super white, pale Jesus. It's, like, big eyes and looks like he's got the skin of a baby. And, and he's, like, big blue eyes. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's so many weird, weird images of Jesus that are out there. This is not who Jesus was. If you want to know what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, watch what Jesus did. If you want to know what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, watch what Jesus did. Jesus grew up seeing rotting corpses on Roman crosses. Rotten corpses on Roman crosses. This image is disturbing to me. Last night when I was preparing this and my kid would walk in the room, one of my kids would walk in and I would quickly like cover up and I'd be like, ah, and like try to change the screen because I didn't want them to see that image. My girls are four and a half and I did not want that image to permeate in their brain. Jesus walked by crosses like this. Jesus grew up seeing people dying on crosses like this. This is the images that his mother undoubtedly tried to shield his eyes from, is images like this. And so before you discard what Jesus has to say to us and what we should do, we really need to consider who Jesus is. And we need to look at what Jesus did. If you want to know what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, watch what Jesus did. Jesus marched straight into Jerusalem, knowing that he might end up on a cross like that. That is the Jesus who we follow. Something that you men, you would probably not do that. My girls are four and a half, and I did not want that image to permeate in their brain. Jesus walked by crosses like this. Jesus grew up seeing people dying on crosses like this. This is the images that his mother undoubtedly tried to shield his eyes from, is images like this. And so before you discard what Jesus has to say to us and what we should do, we really need to consider who Jesus is. And we need to look at what Jesus did. If you want to know what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, watch what Jesus did. Jesus marched straight into Jerusalem, knowing that he might end up on a cross like that. That is the Jesus who we follow. Something that you men, you would probably not do that. And the self-preservation that we live in today and in our society, and we would not have the courage to do what Jesus had done. We would not have the valor to do what Jesus had done. So before we discard what Jesus had to say, because what I'm going to say might be a little bit, it might sound on the surface as feminine or as 
shallow or something that just doesn't appeal to us as men. Because I'm going to show you something that you might know very well. And you might be very familiar with. In John 13, in verse 35. By this. By this. By this. All men. All people. Will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. Love. That's the solution. That is the new, unique idea that I'm presenting to you today. Love. That is the solution to our quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and infamously, deservedly infamous group. That's the solution to that problem. It's by this that all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. So the focus here is that everyone's going to know the difference. The, the world is going to be impacted. Impact. Do you want to make impact? If you want to make impact, you need to love. I know for me, personally, I think, whoa, 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 whoa. I want to be a leader. Love. You want to make impact? Love. I want to do great things. I want to see great things happen. I look forward to the future. I want to innovate. I want to do things that have never been done before. Jesus says, if you want to help other people to know that you're a disciple, everyone's going to know by your love that you need to love. And it's like, for me as a guy, maybe you're not like me, but if I know that I'm coming to church to hear a lesson about love, about love, that seems a little bit difficult for me to wrap my arms around and say, that's something I'm going to be able to walk out of church with and really apply. That is the solution to our problem in here today, gentlemen. So this same writer, John, 50 years later, the Apostle John, he grows old. He, he lived through it. He, he was like the only apostle who made it and like lived on. All of his friends, all the other apostles, they died. They didn't just die of old age. They are like cut in half, hung on crosses, upside down. They were tortured. They were murdered. During that time frame, he had seen the destruction of Jerusalem. People being hung on crosses. Hundreds of thousands of Jews being killed and, and, and on scaffoldings outside of Jerusalem. Jews being hung up on crosses. So that the people inside of Jerusalem, when the siege was happening, could see the Jews being crucified outside the walls. Hundreds of thousands of people died. All of his friends had died. And as an old man, he sits down to write a letter. Sermon, communication, whatever. John, John made it. He was the only one who had made it. And he's old. And what he has to say is really important. Because he was with Jesus. And he was the one who made it. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Love? Love? Against John? You going to stay with this story? Don't you have a new strategy? Can we get some other strategy? How's that been working out for you, John? Where are your friends? 
How many of your friends have died? Do you know what happened to Peter? Do you know what happened to Paul? Did you see what happened in Jerusalem? And you're telling us that your strategy is that we need to love? Great. He says, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Whoever does not love does not know God. You know, you're like, that sister, she can really study the Bible with someone. She really knows how to study the Bible with someone. My preacher, he preaches the word. Dude, that guy has deep convictions. That guy spits hot fire. (laughs) That guy's so intense. That guy's intense when he gets up there. Your preacher, this spiritual community that we look at, they might have deep convictions or be able to preach the word or argue someone into the ground. But whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. God is love. Who is God? If you were going to start describing who God was, where would you begin? Where would you begin to describe who God is? He's like a father who's like, he's out there, but you can't see him. He's, uh, and I've, I've had these conversations with my kids and I actually realize how difficult this is to tell my kids. I don't know if you guys have tried to describe who God is to anyone else before, but it's really intense. And John says here, God is love. There might be a lot of words that you would have come up with to describe who God was. John says God is love. After all that he's seen, after all that he's done, after all that he's gone through, he says God is love. Is, is John mistaken? Is he confused? Or is this really who God is? This is how God showed his love among us. God showed his love among us. He sent his only one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So he says here that God showed his love among us. That he says that God has shown me that I was there. I saw Jesus and I will never, ever doubt. I will never lose my faith because he showed us his love. And I will never doubt who God is. That God is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see how that is there? Do you see that? Us, our, us, our, us, our. Who is us and our? That's everyone. That's pretty much everyone. That's you. That's you who's sitting here. That's your mother-in-law. He loved us and sent his son for an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So who did he who did he send Jesus for? 
That's for your teacher. That's for the police officer that gave you a ticket. That's for your HOA president. You know what? That's for our husbands and wives. That's for our kids. That's for anyone who you spoke to on the phone today. That's for the person who is your next door neighbor. Us and ours. God, it's for everybody. And God cares specifically that He sent an atoning sacrifice. Dear friends, or what this means is really beloved, like a play on words, because He's going off about how God is love, and He's calling His dear friends beloved. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Since God, we also ought. Since God, we also ought. So because God already loved me, I ought to love you. But what's more than that? Because God loved you, I ought to love you as well. Right? So even the people who you're not anywhere close to, that you don't like them, that you might think of your enemy, they might just be bothering you, or they might just be someone who's a store clerk or, you know, a postman. We ought to love because God loved us first. We ought to be so filled with gratitude, so filled with compassion, so filled with mercy because God has loved us. That it is just an overflow of our heart. It's an overflow of our actions that we're just like pouring out. We are leaking and oozing love everywhere we go. This is what John says. And I think John knows best. After all that time, him sitting down and writing this letter, John knew best that we ought to be loving one another. I owe it to you. I owe it to God to love you. I owe it to God to love you. So I want to ask you in here today, as we sit in here and consider that, if you're a Christian or you've been a Christian here, or you've been in the Christian faith for any time whatsoever, does that describe you? Is that who you are? Is that something that your small group embodies or your church embodies? Because you know what? I want it to be never said. May it never be so said. Let it be erased from the the history books. Let it be erased from the records. Let it never be said again that we are quarrelsome, that we are hostile, that we are disputatious and deservedly infamous. Don't you want to get rid of that? Don't you want to change that? How do we change that? We got to love. We have to put this into practice. We have to be this. People don't usually quit a group and say these types of things. People don't leave Christianity or leave following Jesus and say this. You know what? They just really loved me. I don't think that when my sister stopped studying the Bible, that she went away and said, they just love me so much. I just felt so loved by them. Awesome. They just accepted me. People don't leave a group and they're like, you know, they really accepted me, so I didn't want to go there anymore. 
because I felt so warmly welcomed. He forgave me. That he forgave me. I didn't even have to. I didn't even have to like explain anything. I didn't really. I didn't really have to go into detail. That when I approached him on it, and then and then boom, he just forgave me. And I, I don't know. It was just. It was weird. People don't leave because they're feeling forgiven. They know who I am and what I've done. They know who I am and what I've done, and they don't hold it against me. People don't leave because. They, they're known completely and intimately, and it's not held against them. And this is really important. As, 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 if you've been a Christian for any time whatsoever, guess what? You mess up. You're going to mess up. You might be a young Christian. I love in our, camp, our college ministry, we have young Christians, people getting baptized. But after a while, guess what? You're going to mess up. And after you mess up, and everybody knows who you are and what you've done, are they going to accept you? Are they going to love you? Are they going to forgive you unconditionally? You know, when we study the Bible with people, um, when, we, when we help people to come back to faith, people who have left, people like Anne who have left the faith radically and completely, who have walked away from Jesus, and we study the Bible with people, we try to help them become Christians again. I think they walk around feeling like they've been marked with the red letter A. You know, to be known and to feel like, you know what, I know they all know me exactly for who I am, and I feel like they accept me, and they love me anyway. They don't hold it against me. People don't leave when they feel like that. People don't quit that. People don't leave that. Anne Rice did not feel that. She did not see that. What she saw was a quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. Let's eradicate that. Let's get rid of that. Let's just try. Let's try. Can you imagine if we were able to do that? Can you imagine if we were capable of changing people's perspective, of really making impact on the world? If you want to make impact on the world, you can't just say you want to make impact on the world. You can't say you want to be a leader. You can't say you want to bring change. If you're not willing to just try this. Try it, men. Try it, guys. Don't dismiss it. Don't write it off. Imagine if people did not feel coerced when they were around us. People came around and they didn't feel coerced to buy something or, or like they were just trying to be sold something, but they felt drawn. They didn't feel coerced to get in, but they felt drawn in. You know, it's not like we get them close to the pool and then we just shove them, push them in the pool. I've seen a lot of accidents by the pool deck, okay? Do not push I'm very serious about safety on the pool deck and at the beach. That people would come to the edge and go, that pool looks refreshing, and I want to get in it, and you all look like you're having so much fun in there, I'm ready to go swimming. And people want to get in the water. People don't feel coerced to get in the water. People feel drawn to get into the water. I hope that people can feel that from us when they're around us. They feel drawn in by our love. And when they're around us, they feel a little bit guilty. They feel a little bit guilty. They feel guilty because when they're around us, they're like, man, I, I kind of feel like, you know, I have to say thank you, number one, to everybody because do you know how many people bring us food? Because we just had a baby and people in the fellowship 
bring us food to my house. They bring me made meals. People like the Burns. They, they brought food over just the other night. Like Joel Senna and his wife, Rocio. They brought food over yesterday. And, and the Polonigrams, they brought food over. And, and it makes you feel a little bit guilty. You're like, dude, I don't know if I'm so generous as to take all that time to drive from Whittier to San Dimas. And, and I spent money on food and I spent money on gas and I'm spending my time. And they're driving all that way just to bring my wife and I food because we had a baby. So convicting. You could, you could be around these people and feel a little bit guilty because you're like, I don't have that good of a heart. I wouldn't have forgiven them so easily. I wouldn't have canceled that debt the way that you did. That's amazing. It makes you feel a little bit guilty, but it doesn't make you feel condemned. It doesn't make you feel like you can't change, like you can't become the person God intended you to be. It feels almost affirmating that God has a plan for each one of us. And John would say, at the end of his life, he would say this, and if he was here today, and he got to stand up here and speak to us, and he sat down here as a, as a little old man after seeing things that we've never seen, and we couldn't even imagine what he's seen and gone through, he would say to us today, love. As unmasculine and as not powerful as that sounds, it is powerful. It's going to make impact on the world. It's going to make impact on people's lives. So you need to decide that you're going to love me. And I will decide that I'm going to love you. Can you guys do that? Let's try that. Let's try that, everybody. Let's try that for the next week or the next month. Imagine if we did it for a year. If we just, and, then, and then after that, we could get back to our disputatious, hostile, argumentative selves. But during that year, it's going to be a great campaign. It's going to be awesome. Because I think we're going to really change people's lives during that year. And then we can get back to the way that we were. Let's try that. What would that look like? What would that look like for you in your situation? Because you're a teen in here today, and you're like, yeah, this is Sunday school class, whatever. Like, I'm going to leave here. How do I actually put that in practice? You're, in, you're, you're a guy who works, and you have a family, and you're, you're tight on your time, and you're wondering when Chris is going to finish his lesson today so you can go, I don't know, do whatever you're going to do after church, and you're thinking about that. But what would this look like if you were to put this into practice in your college campus? How would you practice that as a man? You know what the Bible tells us? That we need to love our, our wives as Christ loved the church. That's, that's a scripture in the Bible. It tells us what we're supposed to do. That we need to really love our wives, as Mike shared in the, in the opening, that we need to be different in the way that we even function in our marriage. That we need to be different as college students, the way we function in our relationships with women, for young single men, the way that you treat women. That you treat them differently. That you love them the way that Christ intended for you to love them. What would that look like for you as a man in your workplace? Because I know for me, when I hear this, I think, you know, when I watch The Apprentice, it doesn't seem like love has this place in the work environment. You feel like you're going to get taken advantage of. You feel like you're going to get walked over if you're just known as the loving guy. John intended for us to love the world and for our love to mark a difference. It doesn't mean you're weak. But that you forgive, that you love people for who they are, that you believe in people even when they've messed up, 
What would that look like in here? What would that look like in your marriage? What would that look like in your classroom? What would that look like in your workplace? Let's try that. Let's struggle. I don't know. I think it's going to be hard. I think it's going to be a struggle to put this into practice. We've dismissed this for too long. It's been too long that you and I have dismissed this concept. I have dismissed this. This is not something that Chris Boyer wakes up in the morning and goes, you know, I just want to work on being loving today. You know what? I really want to change the world, so I'm going to be a loving guy today. This is not something that I personally would say, I'm just known as a loving guy. And so this was really convicting reading this. I think we're going to struggle going through how to put this into practice. But let's do that. Let's try that. Let's put this into practice. If we're going to struggle with any of the commandments, let's struggle with this commandment. Let's struggle with this command of Jesus to be the most loving group of individuals that we could possibly be. If you want an opportunity to impact the world and you don't want to let it go, don't forfeit it. Don't forfeit your opportunity to impact the world. Don't let us be known as a quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. Just because you think that you have the edge on truth or you really are eloquent and you can preach the word and all that, it doesn't matter. If you haven't loved, it doesn't matter what else you do. It doesn't make a difference if we do anything else. Because whoever hasn't loved doesn't know God. Nothing else matters. You're going to forfeit the opportunity that you have to impact if you do not understand this concept. What I want to leave you with today is that we need to love one another. I'm going to pray for you. Let's say a prayer. We're going to have the communion come out and we're going to be taking the bread and the wine representing Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross.